You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. The Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal, is another simple, straightforward commandment that we've all heard before. It's the the same kind of universal law um, as in do not murder and do not commit adultery. Of course, we know, do not steal. But then, like we've been finding in this second table of the of the Ten Commandments, each of these commandments looks simple, but they end up being like one of those um, stray threads that you might find on your jacket. That's just you know, it looks small, but then you start to pull it, and it it just keeps kind of going and going. That's what we find in these these commandments, in these short, simple commandments, in their broader fuller and truest sense, each of these commandments are rooted in foundational truths that create all kinds of implications for how we live. And by that, they envision the best possibilities for humanity. And by that, they display the wisdom of God. God is wise. He is wise in how he tells us to live. And that's especially the case In the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. And this morning, what I want us to do is to look at five things, five things the Bible teaches us in relation to this commandment. And since there are five things, I want us to to work through this with an outline that's sort of like a play, like a five-act play. There are five different acts in this sermon that I want us to see, and each of these acts are connected and tied together, and as a whole, these five things as a whole, they give us a vision for how we should think about our relationship to goods and wealth, because that's the main theme of the Eighth Commandment. This commandment The Eighth Commandment is ultimately all about our relationship to goods and wealth and our responsibility in that relationship to be just and generous. That's the big overarching main idea of you shall not steal. And before we get into it more, I'd like just to pray again and to ask for God's help. So pray with me. Father, in in this moment, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to open wide our hearts and help us to receive what you have for us today. Your Spirit, in this moment, your Holy Spirit must be our teacher. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here's the first act. We're going to start right here. The first act is we need to respect the reality of property ownership, okay? Before this commandment is going to really make any sense to us, we need to establish the foundational truth beneath this commandment, and it's that humans can own things. The Eighth Commandment presupposes the right to private property, which means there is a distinction between what belongs to you and what belongs to someone else. Now, there's the, the, the caveat here is that everything in its most ultimate sense belongs to God. God is the ultimate owner of all created things. 
He has the ultimate authority over all created things, and God has given each of us distinct and personal ownership of created things for which we are individually accountable. And we're going to come back to that point. But in short, we just need to know that God has made a world where humans can really own things. Here's an example, okay? Every day, I walk around in a pair of shoes that under God are my shoes. Everybody hear that? These are my shoes. And I know that because I remember when my grandmother gave me these shoes. I was 17 years old. These things are still working. <laughs> Floor shine. They're a heirloom, these things. They're my shoes. I can honestly say that these are my shoes because God has made a world under which, in which these are my shoes, which means under God, because these are my shoes, I can give them to you. I can loan them to you, but you cannot take them because they're mine. See? See how that works? Again, ultimately, we'll keep coming back to this. Ultimately, everything belongs to God, including my shoes. But under God, our shoes and everything else, it belongs to us. And if that was not true, follow me here, if that wasn't true, then the eighth commandment would not make any sense, right? You shall not steal means do not take things without the owner's consent. And that, of course, requires that there is such a thing as owners and that those owners have authority. This is just foundational, okay? This is, we need to establish this from the very beginning. And I know it seems simple, but this is really important. There is such a thing as private property under God. Humans own things. These are my shoes. Act two. We need to recognize the stewardship required of owners. Okay, so to say that humans own things is true of every human. The eighth commandment in its narrow sense is about goods and wealth, but in its broader sense, this is just about personal responsibility. To be human is to be a responsible agent. It means you are a, a, you're, you're an owner. All of us, you're an owner first of yourself, of your character and your behavior, and then of the things outside of yourself that have been given to you. And that's the main focus this morning. And and when I say given to you, that I want you to know, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that word on purpose, given to you. We're talking about the things given to you. And I'm saying given because that is how we come to own things. Ultimately, everything we own has been given to us no matter how hard we work for it. At a functional, superficial level, the most just societies in the world are meritocracies. That means that the harder you work and the more skilled and competent you become, the better you do 
and the more ownership you earn. That's how things are set up, right, in just societies. Except that's only part of the story. Because there are a thousand, thousand things that go into your work and skill that are simply given to you, such as the heartbeat in your chest that's required for you to do the work to earn what you own. You cannot get very far in life without a heartbeat. And for every single one of us, your, our heartbeats are given or even just the fact of your existence, the fact that you are alive. The fact that you're alive right now is a gift. Everything we have ultimately is given by God. And this is why the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that he worked harder than anyone he knew, though in the ultimate sense, it wasn't him, it was the grace of God that is with him. 1 Corinthians 15, 10. And then by the same logic, Paul asked this question in 1 Corinthians 4, 7 that we should never forget. Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, the more you dig and the the deeper you go, the rock bottom of your life is grace. And then when you find that rock bottom of grace, guess what? That's grace. It's grace that you know it's grace. And then it's grace that you know it's grace that you know it's grace. And guess what? It's grace that you know it's grace that you know it's grace that you know it's grace. It just keeps going and going. The rock bottom is grace. The deeper you go, the more grace you will find it is all a gift because this is how God has set it up. And therefore, we cannot boast in ourselves. Instead, our foundational emotion as humans in this world, our foundational emotion, the starting point, our starting point response to reality is gratitude. I mean, we we should just be thankful, right? Mainly thankful, Because that's what you do with gifts. You receive them and you give thanks. You receive the gifts and you give thanks for them no matter how hard you work for them. The harder the work, the more the grace, the more the gratitude. That's how we own things, okay? That's how we own things. It's establishing that. And we are all owners of things. Some people might own more and better things. Some people might own less and simpler things. But it doesn't matter because both are owners. And as owners, all we all are morally responsible for the care and use of those things we own. That's what stewardship means. It means we, we have a responsibility. Stewardship is required of owners. We are all owners. And so stewardship is required of all of us. 
That's what makes the poor widow in Luke 21 the same as the rich man in Luke 12. Going back to the gospel of Luke here. These are two individuals in the gospel of Luke who were coming from very different places. The poor widow is poor. She lacks monetary wealth. The rich man is rich. He has, he has so much wealth that he has to build newer and bigger barns to store it all. These are, these are two, two very different people and situations, but they have the same kind of responsibility. They are both owners and therefore they are both accountable for the stewardship of what they own, whether it's two copper coins or 200 barns full of stuff. Both are humans, owners, stewards, and they have to answer to God for their stewardship. They have to answer to God for how they care and use what they own. So to be human is to be an owner. And to be an owner is to be a steward. And so we all seem to recognize here in this moment that this goes for every single one of us in here. All ages, all of us. We are responsible for something. We're all stewards. All right. Now, now we're going to get to Act Three. That's just the foundation there. Acts one and Act two. That's the foundation. Act three here, because we've now established these foundational truths that you know there is such a thing as ownership and that owners are stewards. Now we need to get to Act three, and this is where we need to understand also the reality that it's a fallen world, it's a broken world, and in a broken world where there's responsibility, it means there's going to be failure. Okay. And so here's Act three. Do not take things that are not yours. We need to spell this out. Do not take things that are not yours. That means you shall not steal. To steal is to defy the foundational truth of ownership and is to abandon faithful stewardship, which means to steal, to steal is to make a mockery of the world as God has made it. So don't do that, okay? Don't take things that aren't yours. But then the deeper question is, why would you? Where does the drive to steal come from? I got, I got two little answers and I got one big answer, okay? I'll just say the first, the first two quickly. The first little answer for why someone might steal is because they might be desperately hungry or know someone who's desperately hungry and they can't afford food. Just trying to really think broadly here about how this how this goes. Okay, um, in this case, it's still it's still wrong to steal. But in Proverbs six thirty, the proverb tells us we should not despise such a thief. And we think of people like Jean Valjean. We think of Robin Hood. We tend to we tend not to despise this kind of thievery, right? Second answer for why someone might steal is it's just for the meanness of it. And this is, this is the case in, uh, yeah, for, it was, this was how St. Augustine explains it in, in his confessions. He says that when he was a kid, he and a, a group of his friends stole a bunch of pears from a neighbor's tree. 
And he says that it, it was emphatically not because he and his friends were hungry or even that they wanted the pears. They didn't. This is what he writes. Augustine says, my desire was to enjoy not what I sought by stealing, but merely the excitement of thieving and the doing of what was wrong. And you guys know this is a real thing. Sometimes we do wrong, we've done wrong, just for the sake of wrongness. We, this, this is an example of someone stealing only for the sinfulness of it. Those are the two little answers. Here's the bigger answer. And I think this is the more fundamental reason why someone might break the eighth commandment. It's because they have a lack of contentment. And whether any of us, there's the risk here that we're going to check out because you're thinking I'm not going to steal. But here's the thing. Whether any of us ever steal or are tempted to steal or think about stealing, whether any of us ever steal or not, a lack of contentment is something we should all be aware of. In the same way that anger is on a trajectory to murder, lack of contentment, which often means covetousness, it is on the trajectory to steal. Okay? To be clear, again, lack of contentment is not the same as stealing, but they're in the same family. They're on a spectrum together because at large, hear this, at large, we will never take things that are not ours unless we want things that are not ours. And the problem here is that our whole economy is built on our wanting things that are not ours. The economy, of course, it impacts society. An economy impacts the society around it. That society, it becomes the social air of what we breathe. And in our day, our society, our social imaginary is consumed with a perpetual lack of contentment. Everything around us in this world is meant to tell us that what we have is never enough. The first step is to make us feel the insufficiency of what we own. And then that leads to the second step of us wanting to own more. And then that leads to the third step of us doing whatever we must to enable us to own more, which is the slippery slope of stealing. And maybe, again, maybe we won't literally steal goods and wealth, but if we are pining for more, we are going to have to take something from somewhere to create more means to get it, right? Another word for this is greed, or it's also called the love of money. And it always starts with a lack of contentment. And in fact, the way the Bible tells us to stand against this is by contentment, not lacking it, but having it, being content. This is Hebrews, listen, Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. That is to say, the way to break free from the hamster wheel of always wanting more and doing more to get more is to be content. Come to that place where you know you don't need 
anything more to be happy. And the reason why, says Hebrews 13, 5, be content with what you have for, because God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The grounds of our contentment is the presence of God. It's that he is our God. He is with us and he is for us. God is our helper. So let's just unravel the logic here, okay? Because God is our God, because he is with us and for us, we're going to be okay. We can be content. And that means that we're not chained to greed. We don't lose ourselves in trying to get more. And then that means that we're not going to break the eighth commandment and steal because we don't need to. So because you don't need to, don't take things that are not yours. Act four, do not misuse things that are not ultimately yours. So this is also part of our stewardship responsibility. We don't take what does not belong to us And we also don't misuse what does not ultimately belong to us. And here's where we need to step back and remember what we've already talked about. Everything we have is given by God. And ultimately, God owns it. God is over it. These are my shoes. But they're also God's shoes. They're my shoes but they're also God's shoes. And therefore, I'm accountable to him for what I do with them. Stewardship requires faithful use of what we own because ultimately everything we own belongs to God. The negative way to say it is like this. Don't misuse what is not ultimately yours. Or the way to put it in a question would go like this. What are you doing with your money? I mean, God's money. Goods, wealth, assets, money, all of that. Keep all of that in view, okay? All that stuff. Hold that in your minds, okay? Now, over the last several sermons, we've been referring to the Westminster Larger Catechism because it has an amazing exposition of the Ten Commandments. It was written way back in 1647. And once again, I think when it comes to the Eighth Commandment, there's really helpful insight here. And it's in question 141. The, the catechism lays out a list of duties that we're required to do in obedience to the Eighth Commandment. And, and one of these duties, this is what it says. Just listen to this. It says, endeavor by all just and lawful means to procure, preserve, and further the wealth and outward estate of others as well as our own. In other words, in other words, we, we, we need to get this clear. I just want to I want to make make sure you, you understand. There, there's more than one way to misuse our money. I mean God's money. One kind of misuse is a reckless spending that tries to fill the gaping hole left in our hearts by lack of contentment. That's one way. Another kind of misuse is digging holes in your backyard to bury all your cash. There is a kind of insecure scrimping that is unfaithful stewardship and therefore dishonors God. This is where we have to be very precise and very careful. The problem with money is not money. 
It's the love of money. And the love of money can be expressed as much in frugality as in prodigality. In the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, I think both the prodigal son and the older brother have greed issues. The right use of money, the right use of our money, I mean God's money, is not to never spend it, but it's to spend it well and to grow it. It is a good thing to increase wealth. That's what the Westminster says. To procure, preserve, and further the wealth and outward estate is good, both of others and of ourselves. This means we should want all of our friends to get raises and to buy houses and to receive inheritances. These are good things. These are gifts. And in as much as you have power, you should create these things, make these things for other people. These are good things. We should aspire, we should aspire toward all these things when it comes to our money, I mean God's money. And that's actually the, that's actually the key, see? That's the key. It is a good thing to build wealth. It is a good thing to aspire to build wealth when we really understand that it belongs to God. It's his. It's when we, when we understand that. And that's, that's the whole genius of the tithe. The whole genius of the tithe is to help us remember this. Here's that moment, Cities Church. <laughs> if you've ever wondered, or if you've been wondering what we think about giving and tithing, here you go. Six years, five years, we've never taught it. We've never talked about it in detail. Here's that moment. All right, a tithe means to give a tenth of someone's income or produce. You first see it show up in Genesis 14 when Abram meets Melchizedek. And as a way for Abram to honor Melchizedek, uh, he gives him a tenth of all of that he has, all his spoils. He gives him a tenth of it. Then later we see this show up again. This tenth amount shows up in Genesis 28 when Jacob uh, meets God at Bethel. God comes to Jacob at Bethel and he promises to bless Jacob. And then Jacob in response, he pledges to give God a full 10th of his wealth. Both of these in Genesis 14 and Genesis 28, they're examples of tithing before the law of Moses. And then in the law of Moses, the tithe is confirmed as a standard of giving. Now, a 10th of Israel's seed, fruit and flocks were to be given to Yahweh. Uh, and then the people gave a 10th of what they had to to the Levites who support them. And then the Levites were to in turn give a tenth to the chief priest. So a tithe became part of the law of Moses. It became required under the law of Moses. And this was so set for the people of Israel that to not give the tithe was to steal from God. 
That's exactly the way God puts it in Malachi chapter three. Speaking to Israel, this is what God says. He says, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. The people's question is, God, how have we robbed you? God's answer is, by not giving your tithes and contributions. So according to Malachi 3.8, under Mosaic law, not giving God 10% of your income was stealing from God. So the big question for us, right? You feel it right up in here? Like, <laughs> the big question for us is, is that tithe required of Christians? Like, is that required of us? And if we, if we don't tithe, does that mean we are stealing from God? That's a fair question. Here's the thing. We are not under the law of Moses. And therefore, the tithe is not binding on us like it was for the people of Israel who were under the law. And although there are instances of the tithe that show up before the law, they are not commands for us. And nowhere in the New Testament is there a command to tithe. So no, the Bible does not teach that we as Christians are required to tithe. But then what does God require of us? Everything. Everything. Do you want to know what God requires of you? Everything. God wants all of us. And when it comes to how much we give to him from our goods and wealth, first, we consecrate it all to him. We have a sense. We carry with us a sense of these are my shoes. They're God's shoes. My house, God's house, right? We carry that sense in our bones. And in terms of actual giving, I think 10% is a fine benchmark. It was the expectation of people who lived in the shadows. But we have received a new and better covenant. We upon whom the end of the ages has come. We who are filled with the Holy Spirit. We who are spiritually raised from the dead with Jesus and seated with him in the heavenly places. We who have been given the task of taking the gospel to the nations. 10% is a fine benchmark. Try it. Perhaps it's a good starting place. Because in the New Testament, there is not a set amount we should give. There's just an attitude of the heart we must have in our giving. And that attitude is cheerfulness. Listen, God does not require your tithe. 
He requires your everything. And when it comes to what you give to him from your goods and wealth, you give as much as you can give cheerfully. You get that? You give as much as you can cheerfully. This is the fifth act right here. Give to God as cheerfully as God has given to you. To be clear, I did not say give to God as much as he has given to you because that is impossible. Any idea of paying God back for his grace is demonic. No, you can't. Don't try. That's not how it works. When it comes to grace, we receive grace and we give thanks because that's all you can do with grace. The key word when it comes to giving, what does City's Church think about giving? Here it is, the key word, cheerful. That's the word that Paul uses when he talks about giving in 2 Corinthians 9. For the context in 2 Corinthians, Paul had been taking a collection for the impoverished Christians in Jerusalem. And so he has been in chapter 8 and chapter 9, he's been teaching about giving. And he says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, he says, each one must give as he has made up his mind. Okay, this is willingly. Each one should give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion. This is the same idea of what Paul has mentioned just before this, that giving should be willingly. It's not an exaction. That means God does not tax you. God doesn't tax you. And if your giving to God feels like a tax, stop. He doesn't want your tax. We don't want your tax. If giving feels like a tax, don't do it. Instead, what Paul says, instead, give whatever you have purposed in your heart as much as you can, not reluctantly or under compulsion for, because God loves a cheerful giver. That's 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Give cheerfully from the heart because God loves that and he is able to make all grace abound to you so that you can give. God is able to give you grace in abundance so that you can abound in every good work. Give to him cheerfully, cheerfully. If you go to our website, and you do the slash give, or if you see those boxes back there in the back, if you drop something in those boxes, do it cheerfully. Cheerfully. That's what God says, cheerfully. And, and this is where, like, you've heard that before, right? But this is where I cannot imagine anyone could give cheerfully to God unless they really know that God has given cheerfully to them. God loves a cheerful giver because God is the cheerfulest of all givers. That means that God is happy to save you. It means that he's happy to bless you. 
God's grace in your life is not begrudging. Do you believe that for a minute? Think about that. The goodness of God in your life, the blessings of God in your life, the grace of God in your life, that grace, that goodness, those blessings are not begrudging. Do you, do you believe that or some way, for some reason, do you think it pains God to give you grace? Like, do, what I mean is, do you think that of all the good things in your life, do you, do you think somehow deep down, you got to think deep for a minute here. Do you think those good things in your life had to be pried out of the hand of God? Think about that. Did they? Do you think that? The good things in your life, did they have to be pried out of the hand of God? If you think that somewhere deep down, that is not the truth of grace. The truth of grace is that it is God's delight to save you. God's delight to give you grace. God is cheerful in his goodness to you. He is lavish in his love. That is the message of the gospel. It's what Paul says just a chapter over in 2 Corinthians 8. On the topic of giving, Paul goes right to the heart of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's about to, to drop on us the truth of grace. You want to know the truth of grace is what he says right here. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is. That though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you in his poverty might become rich. It is his delight to save you, to make you rich in grace. And the only way we could ever give cheerfully is to know and really know how cheerfully God has given to us. As one writer puts it, gaze upon Christ long enough and you'll become more of a giver. Give long enough and you'll become more like Christ. The cheerfulest, the cheerfulest of all givers, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Respect the reality of property ownership. Recognize the stewardship required of owners. Do not take things that are not yours. Do not misuse things that are not ultimately yours. Give to God as cheerfully as he has given to you, which is so, so cheerful. And that's what brings us now to this table. Here at this table, each week in the bread and the cup, we remember the death of Jesus for us. And as we remember the death of Jesus, we receive afresh the abundance of his grace. And this is the message of this table. It's that Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. Receive his grace with cheerfulness. It is all by grace. And so we give him Thanks. And this morning, if you're here 
and you trust in Jesus, if you have received his grace and been united to him by faith, we invite you to come eat and drink with us. We're going to serve the bread first, and then I'll come back up. We'll eat it all together. Uh, His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.